reason I wanted you to come here today is because Corey and I have been talking a lot about uh, salvation and the plan of salvation, and I see correlations here in the evangelical world and, and bring that over into the restoration. Um, and I wanted someone that, uh, well, I wanted to bounce ideas off someone who may or may not feel as I do. I just know that you're very well versed in uh, the- theology and, and these things that we're talking about. So I wanted to bring up to you, it was a few years ago, uh, there were some things going on in Brazil, and we won't get into all that, but uh, there was a talk of some plates that were there and maybe some things going forth. And I I really dove into the Book of Mormon, uh, and I'd read it several times, but more so than I had ever done in my life. And I bought a new Book of Mormon. I didn't want anything highlighted previously, and I just tried to read through it with fresh eyes as much as I could. There was a verse in the Book of Mormon that hit me, and it was talking about salvation being tied to having faith unto repentance. And that small verse, I thought, that is so huge, faith unto repentance. And I started thinking, what in the world does this mean uh, for me in my everyday life and in my heart and in my inner man to have faith unto repentance? And I I just couldn't forget that scripture. And so I, I just dived into the Book of Mormon and... I realized that, well, I'm still realizing the gospel in the Book of Mormon is so plain and precious um, that if we step away from that, we, we stumble, as it says, it was restored so that men, because men stumbled because of the plain and precious things of the gospel being removed. So I wanted to ask you about, so in this evangelical world, they're debating um uh, the sovereignty of God, and uh, you know, you don't want to undermine that sovereignty, and, and even doing anything on your own seems to to do that free will agency. I think that in in the restoration, uh, there's kind of that when you talk about the glories and the different levels of of heaven, and Mormonism kind of gets wrapped up in that a lot more than we do. That there is a a debate that can be had on. Um, works versus the sovereignty of Christ and his blood saving us. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit and just get your opinion. Um, so that's a lot that I All just right. threw out there. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll yeah. step back and just let you talk for a minute. We'll okay. see where it goes. Um, repentance to many evangelicals is simply a change of mind about who Christ is. Now, that's hard. If you wrap your brain around that, it's hard to uh, understand for us because to us, it's like Isaiah 1, 16, 17, cease to do uh, evil, learn to do well kind of thing. And that's how we perceive repentance. So it's it's a change in the pattern of sin to us. Um, when you become a Christian, when you have that faith and repentance you're talking about, you, the pattern of sin has to change. It can't continue unabated, and that's what the restored gospel says. With Chuck Swindoll, it can continue. Uh, but as long as you accepted Jesus as your Savior, you can be a carnal Christian. And that's what makes the restored gospel this faith of repentance you're talking about, I think, unique because repentance is not just a change of mind. It's a change in the pattern of sin. Mm. I had a, a friend who I met. Uh, he was a realtor. His name was Doc White. He lived here in Independence for some time. I think he's passed on. But he helped us buy a couple houses when, when I was young and starting out and didn't have much money. He was always trying to, well, he knew I was a, quote, Mormon or Latter-day Saint, that's all he knew. And uh, he was always trying to, he was giving me videotapes of John Hagee, and and I think he was Baptist. But I, we got into a, a talk one time, and I said, so, so you're telling me that he was just once saved, always saved. He said, I committed to Christ. I know I'm saved. And I said, so what if you went out and killed somebody tomorrow? And I said, would you still go to heaven? And he just, he stopped for a minute. He said, well, 
I guess the Lord would prevent me from doing that at the last minute or something. And it I just, just wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, that's the perseverance part of TULIP that you're talking about. Perseverance means once saved, always saved. Mm-hmm. And uh, so once you accept Christ as your Savior, you could never fall from a saved condition. But Hebrews 6, verse 4 through 6, makes it pretty obvious that you can fall from grace. And so I think uh, that's true in a small degree for us between uh, communion as we, you know, we can fall from grace. And I have trouble. I, I sin. I commit errors in my life that I'm not proud of that I constantly have to keep short accounts with God. And uh, I want to make amends for that. And I have this sin nature in me that's never going to change, it seems like, Mm -hmm. except the scriptures tell us it will. At some point, we will have victory. We can live victoriously. But, you know, when Matthew 5.50 says, uh, be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect, or it's 48 in the King James, Mm -hmm. Um, when it says that, I think that's only possible through the grace of our Lord and a miracle outside of ourselves for that to ever happen because I have struggled so long in my life. That's one of the things I've learned. And I'm 65 years old and I look back and I say, this is hard to uh, be perfect. And so uh, now I didn't mean to switch the subject to perfection. No, this is great. But I'm saying that salvation and perfection and anything God does in our life is 100% done by his grace. And his grace is more than unmerited favor, which is how evangelicals define it. It's true that it is unmerited favor. That's not false. That is true. We don't merit it. It is a favor that God pours out in our lives. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 15.10, or you look at Jacob 3.8, you see in those passages that uh, by his grace, God was able to empower us, empower believers to do things. And Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I that labored, but it was the grace of God which was with me, in me. That's, yeah. I want to... You just said something that was fantastic. I want to I want to bring that out again. You said um, that even though you know sixty years old, sixty five years old, and, and I'm approaching fifty, that trying to to live a day without sinning, and you said nothing short of a miracle that yes. will ch- that that will be a miracle yes. when our nature is finally changed. Amen. And I think growing up in the church, I and this could not be the church's fault, but I had the opinion that eventually I could get to a point where I was just living a, a perfect life, that, yeah. that I loved God so much that I wasn't uh, sinning anymore. Like uh, I, I noticed Nephi says in the Book of Mormon, at one point he's praying, oh, Lord, help me that I would abhor sin. And then a few chapters later he says, "And you know, I abhorreth sin. Like It was almost like he was changed, that now he, he hates sin. But I don't know that that means that he didn't ever sin or have a bad day after that but right. but he knew that he hated that part of his life or that he hated that nature that nature is in all of us it's in me it's in everybody and um, uh, it's that thing that we have to um, uh, allow more of God's grace in our lives to fight against it isn't just a pull yourself up by your bootstraps gospel which is the a criticism that outsiders, evangelicals, for example, have of us. They say that about Catholics. They say mm-hmm. that about us. They say about a number of faiths. They say uh, that we're saved by grace alone. Well, uh, you're not alone in that, Mr. Evangelical. We, too, are saved by grace alone. I would say 100% mm-hmm. grace alone. I, one of my uh, challenges, I was going to go through the Book of Mormon. I thought, I'll just write down every time it talks about Jesus and his blood and his uh, saving power. And, and I'll just, I want to make notes of that so I can give that to someone and show them, you know. And 
it was like I think page six mentions Christ in the Book of Mormon. Like if you, you can't get too many pages in before you read about Jesus, even in the Old Testament Book of Mormon. Oh yeah, and about about <laughs> three or four chapters in, I just gave up. I said this whole book talks about this. <laughs> well, I'm just going to rewrite the whole book because yeah. and so yeah. uh, that is the Book of Mormon is such an uh, I don't know evangelical book. It's all about the power of Jesus and His saving. Grace and so bringing that into modern day restoration, I feel like the fullness of the gospel and the message of Jesus got hijacked along the way um, by good men who uh, got off track. Uh, shortly after the Book of Mormon was written, there was a revelation of the Doctrine and Covenants that that said the church is under condemnation because you've already you've left the New Covenant, even the Book of Mormon. And I and I've often I've thought, what was the church? doing? What was it getting into that it was leaving the Book of Mormon? Do you have any opinion on that? I do, but I want to see what you yeah. what you think. One thing I appreciate about the church is that the people who started it left a paper trail that was crystal clear about what was happening spiritually in the church as they went along. They weren't afraid to be right out there in the open with what was going on. But with that, you also see a progression. We have the advantage of hindsight, they right? Did not and uh, uh, you see a progression where it kind of got away from the fundamental truths, and uh, uh, not so much the gospel as some extraneous issues that had nothing to do with the gospel. They kind of got lost in, I think, mm-hmm. and um, uh, they have a superior product, but. We didn't market it very well. And, uh, <laughs> that's my. That's perfectly said. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, because I, <clears throat> I grew up. I still remember driving out to World Conference with my family in a big van, and we had some cousins in there. And I remember my one cousin was uh, in high school, and she was debating. She was telling us how she was talking with one of her teachers about the Book of Mormon, and. I was young, you know, I hadn't been less than eight years old, but I was fascinated by this. Listen, and I was like, so what'd you tell them then? But it was all this thing about defending the church, like the the church. And I wonder, I just, I thought, can we just present the message in the Book of Mormon and it stands on its own? That's and- exactly right. Um, I've always tried to avoid... Uh, presenting the church to other people. I've always tried to stick to Christ and the gospel just like you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think um, the church is a vehicle to deliver that to the world, but it's not the end-all and be-all because it's made up of uh, uh, weak sinners like myself that we're, we're susceptible to uh, that. And so... Um, to me, it's point the way to Christ, like you're saying, and point the way to the atonement and his sacrifice on the cross and and uh, talk about those things. That's that's what saves you. The church doesn't save you. The gospel does. Jesus yeah. and the gospel. We, we, we've had some Latter-day Saint listeners because uh, we've heard from them, but um, so we're always mindful of that. But anytime you, you take any gospel and put it, above previous scripture. Uh, for example, we, we brought out uh, Brigham Young. It's recorded. Uh, he was asked, you know, which one of these books is more important, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants? And he said, none of those. It's the living oracles of God, the prophet who supersedes all of that. And that's a real dangerous place to go, is it not, when you start saying um, new ideas and things can supersede old? I mean, don't they? Right. I think uh, Brigham went a little overboard with that. Um, I'm not uh, prone to be super critical of the Mormon church, but I do believe that he departed somewhat from the original teachings and uh, got off on some extraneous issues Mm -hmm. that aren't really beneficial. But when we when we witness to um, anyone in the world that knows of the Book of Mormon, because of what some things that he did, we have uh, that baggage, first of all, to lay a foundation. Uh, we did a series called Mormonism is Not the Book of Mormon and tried to, to bring out some of the tenets of the Mormon religion and, and show that this is not what the Book of Mormon says. As a matter of fact, it says opposite. So that's hard, isn't it, for our, for our people, our children— to learn to witness to other people, having to deal with that? 
Yeah, I think that our church has felt the grip of the LDS church um, firmly attached to our arms, and we're trying to undo that at times because we've been put in that same bucket and uh, by other people. Um, yeah, I think that's true. So that brings us to we've been we've been talking about on our on our weekly podcast. What does the Book of Mormon teach? And uh, I know one of our ministers at. at uh, Colburn, where I go, preached a sermon not too long ago, and he said, uh, he was talking to somebody, and he said, if we don't have a basis foundation for the Word of God, you know, being truth and what we base our lives on, that it doesn't serve us to even go farther in this conversation because there's no foundation for us to agree on. So when you take away all truth, there's nothing really to, to debate and probably a fruitless conversation. <clears throat> but when you're using the... Um, when you're talking to people about Jesus uh, and they want to get into, well, Joseph did this or that, um, it seems to me it's like, well, what does the Word of God say? And then just go back to the the Book of Mormon stands on its on its own. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree with you. Um, uh, that's why I started, or I'm starting um, a website. Uh, we're building it right now called BOMstudy.org. And um, I'm putting all of these Book of Mormon study guides up there to try to get people to dig into the Word more deeply. Um, our church never had a good curriculum, never had a good written curriculum that everybody could use. And so that's what I've tried to create. And uh, I've got about, I don't know, 60 or 70 study guides I've written. I write a study guide for every chapter of the Book of Mormon. And... Uh, um, so I've gone all the way from Alma 1 to Moroni, and I've also done 1st Ephi, and I'm working on 2nd Ephi right now, and I use those at Center Place School. been teaching at CPRS? Four years. Okay, and you teach religious studies? Yeah, religious studies. I teach um, comparative religion, philosophy of religion, Old Testament, and Book of Mormon 2. So there's two Book of Mormon courses. I teach the second one. Okay. I wish I could go through those classes. That sounds... (laughs) (laughs) That's right up my alley. So my son's going to be with you next year, senior. Tell me what... What do our what do you perceive? What do our children need to know? Because I think what the children need to know is what we as adults also need to know. What what do you uh, what do you find is relevant for them today? Well, um, number one, should we or should we not believe in God's existence? Does He exist? A lot of kids get to college. They never really made that decision, and uh, they grew up in the church even, and they uh, don't realize uh, or know what are their reasons to believe that God exists. And so I created a website called areasontobelieve.org, and on that website, um, it's written just for atheists, and it gives five arguments for the existence of God, uh, five different arguments that say he does exist. They don't use any scripture. It's all science and logic, and um, it took me about two years to create that website. A reason to believe.org. Yeah. Okay, I wrote yeah. it down. Okay. And um, on that website, you have all kinds of arguments. The go and teach slides that we used to have don't back up that far. They kind of assume in the 50s that everybody had had some exposure darken the door of a church at one point in their lives. Right. And so you're just converting them from another gospel to this gospel. 
And so that's how Go Ye and Teach was written. But I was going to ask you because uh, I thought, is it even relevant today to go through the Reformation and Martin Luther and uh, Wesley and show how all these people wanted to, you know, knew that we needed to have a restoration? But it's like, we're, it seems like we're today we're beyond that because that was that was for that. religious school people to to right. systematically think in their mind. Well, that that makes sense. Now it's like well, I don't believe in any truth, right? Right. Right. Yeah. You, you, they go to college. They have an atheist professor that tells them in their first philosophy class that God does not exist, and uh, you've got to decide as a student why. What argument could I give him? And so it's pretty intimidating. So I give those arguments on my website, and I teach that. That website is the basis for my philosophy of religion course, which is a one-semester course. And I use my website as the basis. I, I teach off of that. So I go to the website, and I teach the kids uh, using that. So have you have you gotten any feedback from atheists or anything that have read? Yeah. I get comments. The problem is, uh, the, when I first wrote the site, I got about 25,000 likes uh, for the, the site in the first six months. Wow. I or, and um, um, then I uh, found out uh, that Center Place wanted me to go teach. And so I suddenly had to drop it. And I was going to do a blog and everything called Reasonology on that website. But I didn't get to do that. I stopped it, and I picked up CPRS, and I started writing curriculum as fast as I could <laughs> for the next four years. And so I've spent a few thousand hours typing um, lessons, and those Book of Mormon lessons I talked about are probably my best effort. I've also created a Old Testament uh, lessons on the various books of the Old Testament. I just got done writing I don't know about 150 pages on Isaiah on the book of Isaiah. So. It's not it's not fair, is it? Because Chuck Swindoll does Route 66 and uh, has 66 <laughs> books, and then we've got <laughs> and then you've got to dive into the the Gospel and the Book of Mormon. So yeah. you've got a lot more on your plate. Yeah, he he, uh, he has a whole staff to help him too. He right, spreaders. So I don't have that. I just sit there with my laptop and do it every day. Sure. So. Uh, when will that website be up? You said you're doing a, a study guides on the Book of Mormon. It's in process. Uh, Rich Hinkle is helping me, and he has just been – he encouraged me to do this. And uh, so it's just in the last few weeks that we've been working. Oh, neat. And uh, so it's not up yet, but it'll be a few more weeks, I think, and we'll have something for people to see. How do you feel about uh, – so the young people at CPRS, it's, it's so – I can't wrap my mind around it because of going to through school where I was the only uh, church member um, that I could think of. And so these kids are surrounded by, quote, church members. Um, (laughs) Certainly they must take it for granted, I'm sure. They they have a different perspective than I do. But there still has to be something that connects them other than just being in a Christian school. And I've seen some of them, you know, get out of the school and kind of fall away from their beliefs because maybe relying too much on the school as their source of strength, but it still has to be a a personal connectedness to God. Um, What's that like being amongst those, those little ones every day? Well, I grew up with a totally different perspective because I went to two different schools in Detroit and I went to two different schools in Austin and another one in Orangeburg. And then, you know, so it just, by that, it was the opposite. And I was immersed. In other words, schools didn't have as much influence on me. Right. It was more my parents and the church that influenced me. And so, as a result, I had a very strong testimony. I look at these kids at CPRS, and it's totally different from my background. It's hard for me to know exactly how they feel, but I do get reactions. I do ask them about their faith. Uh, Many are very devoted to the gospel. Uh, Many uh, don't know what they think. And so it, it, it covers a gamut, a wide range of, of uh, beliefs. 
do you think there's uh, amongst the younger people? Um, I don't want to use the word damage. Uh, there's, well, let's just say so. The parents that came up in the church was the emphasis maybe incorrectly placed at times, and that's having a uh, impact on the younger people because they're being raised uh, in that environment as well. Does that make sense? The message, I should say. Um, in other words, they didn't quite absorb that message. Is that or, what you're saying? Or, yeah, or I th- it seems like the message is we're the one true church. This is how you defend your faith and misses the the um, interpersonal Jesus is your Savior. You rely on him with everything you have. That That connectedness, like you need to know him. You need to have a relation with him as opposed to the church is right. And I think that was huge through the, at least through the seventies and eighties. Cause that's as far back as I can go. <laughs> yeah. it, in section one of the doctrine and covenants, it says that this is the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth with which I, the Lord am well pleased. And that's kind of a foundational thing for this church. It's uh it's been something we've relied on or hung our hat on. I think in Joseph's day, there was a point in those 14 years from 1830 to 1844 where it was true, section one was true, that this is the only true church. In other words, it has the true doctrine. Mm-hmm. I believe that's still true. It has the true doctrine and the most true doctrine. So. In that sense, it's the only true church, um, living church. When you think about living, I think of the lively oracles that the New Testament talks about. Not that Brigham Young talks about, but the New Testament talks about. Having a revelation, having the gifts of the Spirit, having um, dreams and visions and healing and uh, uh, wisdom and knowledge and, and so forth. All these gifts of the Spirit that were evident in the early days of the church, I'm not so sure those are as evident today. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we can say we're the living church, we're the only living church. The Spirit is there. It's not dead. This is not a dead church. I would not say that. It has the Spirit. I at times uh, witness it, but I tell the kids, I don't see the gifts as often as I used to. Right. And my dad was a district president in Philadelphia. There was a man, and I can't remember his name. Oh, John Grice. He had the gift of tongues. And he spoke in tongues very often. So my dad had a recorder. Those were pretty rare. Not everybody had a tape recorder. And he put up microphones all over the church. And he was presiding. And John Grice did happen to speak in tongues that night. I have a recording of it. Uh, 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 but that's the only instance that I'm aware of. Or I've never heard the gift of tongues right. in my lifetime. I used to hear prophecies, and I don't hear those as often. Now, they weren't all the time. I'm not going to tell you right. everything was the glory days, the good old days in my childhood. But I, I just am saying to a lesser degree, I see those things. Now, they still exist. Our church believes in the gifts of the Spirit, but we need to affirm those gifts. We need to live by those gifts, and and we need to raise them up as being a good thing and something we should seek after as a people if we want God's blessings. This this may cut to the core to bring this up, but it's you said the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit has to be present for those gifts to be there, and I think that's not a that's not a criticism as much as um, a necessity for us to acknowledge that and look at where we are and always return to God because it's the Spirit present, you know, the vine to the branch, and when that's broken, then of course those gifts aren't there, and so always going back to the word and saying, where, where have we departed and where is our first love? You know, why is the spirit not here with us? I think that's an excellent point. And that's probably where we need to begin in seeking after those gifts. Um, the gifts of the spirit to me are 
something I long for that I, I, I hope will be restored will come back to a fuller degree. And uh, I think our kids, when you asked about kids at CPRS, I think they haven't experienced many of those. Mm-hmm. Some things they have, but not all of them. And it's getting to be fewer and fewer. And I'm concerned about that. Uh, to unlock God's grace in our lives, James 4, 6 tells us that we have to be more humble. The key that unlocks the grace of God is humility. And what you're talking about, returning to our first love, I've lost something here. It's recognizing that, like you said, and uh, there's something lost and I need to return to. And uh, that humility is where it begins. That unlocks God's power. Grace is God's power, and humility is the key that unlocks that power. Interesting. I'm just pondering on that. Well, let me uh, let's uh, finish with. I want to just talk about some of the the doctrines since you're you're kind of up on the theology. Tell me about the Book of Mormon. I'll present a question to you, and you just tell me what you know from the scriptures. So, what is the doctrine of salvation in the Book of Mormon? What is what does it mean to be okay? Here's here we go. So, when I was brought up, I was taught. Uh, when you're talking to evangelicals and they say, are you saved, that your quick response was, well, yes, I'm saved, but what are you saved to? And I thought that was a pretty smart answer when I was there. I thought, well, that's great. That goes yeah. with the glories and everything. But as I read the Book of Mormon, I cringe at that now, and I think that was a smart little smarty answer to give to someone because what does the Book of Mormon teach about salvation? I think— that's not a good response. It's what I was taught. It's what we've all been taught. It's a very lawyerly um, uh, answer, uh, kind of uh, going on technicalities. Let's let's get technical. Now, anytime you get technical with another faith, you have to be ready to really go deep in your theology and be able to explain. So when you do that, you're opening up a whole can of worms. Ah, I like that. Okay. Yeah. So my answer to are you saved is yes. And that's it, period. (laughs) I am. Because the question is asking, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And that's, okay. So you're looking at the substance behind the question. Right. What are you really saying? And I don't want to get into arguments about what am I saved to. I don't want to talk about glories and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to tell people why I believe. So the next thing is, why do I believe? Why do I think I know that I'm saved? Or why do I have uh, that assurance? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things. Uh, and so it's talking about assurance. Um, the Book of Mormon is filled with passages that say we have the assurance that we're saved. We know that we're saved. We know that, we, that Christ is our Redeemer. Yes, yeah. And okay. the only, you know, I come to uh, the, I, I, I come to this situation with total unworthiness. I I begin, my starting point is, it's not anything I've done. I am a sinner. I am weak. I don't have the ability to save myself. I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps. It's only by God's grace, 100%. And so the scriptures, how do I know that? How do I have that assurance? Well, the scriptures have the promises. They tell me that. They say that 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 comes through the atoning sacrifice of Christ and that his atonement, without that atonement, I would be nowhere. I would be lost. So I am definitely believe that I'm saved because of the promises of scripture. And um, uh, that that's... You know, that's just where I get that assurance from. But we all need to have that assurance. If we don't have that assurance, we need to ask ourselves uh, where we're at in our relationship with God. That's that's a great point, that assurance. The Book of Mormon does talk about that. And what um, so what is it in the evangelical world where they feel like, so I always ask, what's the spirit behind the philosophy of once I'm saved, I'm always saved? It's like they're striving for an assurance, and they want it to be uh, doctrinally sound. They want to 
make sure they know that in their head, but there has to be something more than that. What There's that spirit of why is there a debate about once saved, always saved, and what's the evil spirit driving that? Is that a counterfeit uh, to having the assurance inside? Well, that is called the theological term for once saved, always saved is perseverance. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, that has its roots in Calvinism from 1536 for the Institutes of Christian Religion that Calvin wrote. And um, uh, it, it's one of the bedrocks of Calvinism. The Book of Mormon, on the other hand, is very anti-Calvinist. It's very Arminian. It, it doesn't embrace uh, the Calvinist on any of the five points. So one of the five is what you talked about, once saved, always saved. And um, uh, we believe that, you know, the passages in Scripture make it evident that you can't fall from grace. So what sustains perseverance is what you asked me. You said what what uh, causes that to have such life and to have legs and mm-hmm. really you know, perpetuates it. Um, what keeps it alive, I believe, is the belief that when we don't say God automatically locks us into salvation, we stay there. We're taking glory away from him again. It's back to that taking glory away from God. Uh, the Calvinists are so um, uh, focused on. Um, and so it's, you know, I go to Mount Pisgah Baptist Church when I was 10 years old and I accepted Jesus as my Savior. And ever since then, I've been in the mafia, but I'm saved. And uh, uh, it's, it, it, it's that carnal Christian thing, that idea. Um, it, it's... <laughs> Does God do all this or do I do all this? And they like to very much say that God does it all. Well, he does do it all. It's, it, if I have an urge to help a little old lady across the street, it's only because God's grace first inspired me to do that, to say that I should do that. And I don't even know that that's happening. But it's, I can't do one good thing in this life short of God's grace. I can't get up and get into the baptismal font without God's grace. It's his grace moving me to do that, the desire and power to do God's will. That's my definition of grace. Say you'll be mine, could you love me forever, for all that time, me and you together, if you think that. to what you said earlier that the miracle the true miracle will be when we're able to do that 100% all of the time without stumbling that's so uh I was gonna you mentioned something a couple times and it kind of went by me but when the book of Mormon says that it's to restore uh to to help people come to Christ because the plain and precious truths have been removed and, and to restore those you said the Armenian or the Calvinist uh, Institute of Religion 15 uh, 1536. We, yeah. I think because I grew up with the Go You Teach, we had these little quotes here and there from Martin Luther and Charles Wesley, but to think that there was whole institutes and, and, and systems of learning based on philosophy way before the Book of Mormon came forth, to me shows the, the need and the purpose to clear all of that up. And even today, you've got two mainstream uh, evangelical ministers or, or uh, years ago writing books against each other on based on these schools of thought that were way before the Book of Mormon. And here it comes along yeah. to says, so you know how to come to Christ. Here's the plain, precious gospel. Yeah. And it clears all of that up. That's right. Um, it clarifies a lot of issues that people have wondered about for centuries. Now, when I went to Graceland, the college professors would say, well, these were all issues that existed in the 1800s, and Joseph Smith was just writing a book in response to that, those issues that were floating around. But it's not true. Those issues have been around for centuries. 
<clears throat> excuse me, they've been around for centuries. So um, we don't, uh, it, it, the, the restored gospel is not settling something that is just recently made up or uh, created, but it's been around for a long time. Kind of went south not too long after the apostles and Jesus and, uh, and yeah. 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 I, uh, I appreciate you being here today, Bob. I want to ask you, just finish with a couple questions. Number one, um, I wanted to ask you, uh, as far as salvation goes, and, and this is really, I wanted to bounce this off of you. I think that we've misinterpreted uh, the, well, the going and teach, especially on the plan of salvation and life after death. I, I don't, I don't believe that it says what it says in the in the scriptures and doctrine and covenants, but but that the Book of Mormon is clear that eventually all men will either be with with God in the end or will become sons of perdition. And and there's such a dichotomy, there's such a parallel throughout the Book of Mormon in so many ways. Do you think that message has um, uh, been taught wrong, or or what do you think about that? I think the glories, in other words, are are states of restoration, of, of resurrection, but not a final resting place, and that there's a lot going on in the millennium to either draw all men to Christ or that you end up rejecting everything. What, what do you think about that? Well, other religions uh, reject that entirely, that there's any further chance to uh, come closer to God that you either are or you aren't, and it's locked in and right. it's done. They call the, well, we call Zion a messianic age. They call it a messianic age. And there are uh, millennial evangelicals that believe it's just uh, uh, sort of a uh, symbolic or figurative where God rules from heaven and uh, he still hasn't come down to earth. And then there are dispensationalists that say that, no, there's a, a literal uh, uh, kingdom on earth. And um, um, so what happens in that little kingdom, that thousand years that uh, Revelation talks about and uh, what occurs there? It's kind of a mystery to right. all of us. I, I don't know. You know, I'm not a prognosticator, but um, it's my thought that there will be an opportunity and that they will still uh, ch have children and grow and, and develop. Uh, there will be other people uh, and they'll be taught, and uh, they'll have a chance. Uh, when I think of the glories, by the way, you mentioned the glories, I think it's even more than that. The nature of God seems to dictate a fairness in the way he's going to determine things. So the least little bit of difference in the way I live my life here on earth is going to make a, a difference in eternity. And uh, every little thing that differentiates us will be evidence. So I think it's more than three glories in my belief system. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the church's, but it's my personal belief that uh, there are degrees beyond the three in heaven, and there are degrees in hell, too, separation from God. And it'll be exactly according to how you personally lived your life. Now, you think, when you say that, is that like uh, forever and ever, for all eternity? or, or uh... It could change. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. My mind's open because I don't pretend and know all those things. Sure. But the reason why I say it is it goes back to the nature of God because if God is a just God, he's just, he can be just to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we receive exactly what we deserve. Yeah. Well, I like what you said earlier. Like, uh, no matter what I do or how good I am, I'm still... Uh, filthy compared to holiness. And the Book of Mormon, even King Benjamin speaks of that. Like, even if you served him with all of your soul, all the days of your life, you'd be an unprofitable servant. And I'm looking forward to that day where that miracle happens and Christ says, you've, you've given all you give. And even after that, it's not enough. And I'm going to fix I you now. Too. I'm going to remove that sin from you. You know, we like to quote Isaiah 64, 6. It says, all your works are filthy rags. And and uh, that really is true. Uh, to, to, to some degree, everything I try to do in my own strength is filthy rags. But anything that I do by God's grace is, um, I think it's possible to do good things. 
and I look forward to the, the, the day when in my life I will be able to do um, uh, good things all the time. But I don't have the strength right now to do that. I'm fallible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but I do with you look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. What's uh, what was uh, James McDonald, one of my favorite preachers who f- had a falling out and now he's back again, like most most men. But he used to talk about he had a limited limited amount of goodness in him until he just wore out. Like he could he could be so much to so many people, and then he's like, I'm at the end. Like I have no more to give, and I'm a sinful man. It was it was an interesting way to look at things. But I wanted to share one thing real quickly. Um, a few years ago, my wife, and it was 2013, uh, January 6th of 2013, she was traveling alone in Arizona, and she had a, uh, she went into a Safeway store and fell, fainted, and oh. cracked her head open. And uh, they life-flighted her out of there to a trauma center, and within two hours, the doctor had to operate her. She would die. Her brain was uh, oh. swelling. And... In that experience, I learned how dependent I am on God. I cannot do any good thing of myself. I was back here in Kansas City, and I couldn't do anything. And it was 24 hours before I could fly back, fly down to Flagstaff to see her. And um, uh, that experience taught me um, just how how childlike. How uh, dependent I am on my Savior and my Lord, because uh, it it brought that back again and renewed a lesson that He's been teaching me over and over in my life. And uh, uh, she spent ten days in the trauma center, then thirty days in rehab in Phoenix, uh, trying to recover, learning how to walk and talk again. Um, I remember that. I remember the prayers for that. Yeah. She um, uh, has taught me a great deal through that experience about my gratefulness and my leaning on the Lord. And I think what's happened over my life is that more and more and more I've learned to lean on Him. And uh, uh, that's even true in my later years. And uh, I, I, I believe that very, very much. Mm. I'm entirely dependent on Him. For strength, he he did a miracle there of healing her. It could have gone either way, and um, I've had many uh, like that in my lives where I, life where I know are pivotal moments where he has um, uh, brought a blessing to me in a major way. That's so poignant. That's so important. I read a memoir yesterday uh, or a letter written by a lady. It was written the day before she died. She wasn't even 30 years old. She had a terminal illness, and she was really the epitome of health, a climber, a runner. Um, And she wrote this. It really tugged at my heart. It was hard to read because it was so real that each one of us is going to reach that. But she said, you know, we think we're going to go on forever and grow old and have grandkids and all of these things. But she said, "Every to, to be 28 and know that your days are that limited. And, and for her, it was the next day she passed away. She wrote this. And she said, I'm thankful that we go through this life not understanding um, our mortality and the imminence of death, that that's kind of hid from our consciousness or we just can't wrap our minds around it. She said, I'm thankful for that until the day you need to talk about it, and then it becomes taboo. And so she was faced with this death, this knowing that she was going to leave. She said, I love my life. And she said, I, you know, you, you, we get upset when people cut us off in traffic and, and when all of these little things, she said, walk outside and breathe the air. Look at the blue sky. Uh, we hate to exercise until we can't walk anymore. And then it's like, oh boy, if I could go on a walk. So she's saying all of these things, but she says, I recognize this is a blessing, not knowing our mortality, that we just don't wrap our mind around it until we need to, and then we don't want to talk about it. And I think that's really, um, when it comes to eternity and our relationship with God, that can be the same thing, that we we don't want to, it just doesn't seem real to us until it needs to be. 
and then we're reminded of it. I think that's true because it can be distracting and at times disabling if we ah, focus disabling. our entire lives on that. And, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. But we do need to, like that moment you had with your wife, and um, that's, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, uh, we, we were out west those last two weeks, and about the third day, and this this is this shies in comparison to what you just shared, but the, the third day in, I woke up in the middle of the night, and my wife was, she was rummaging around in my toiletry bag, and I didn't know what she was doing. It was like two in the morning, and uh, she looked over. She goes, you only have one Tylenol and one Motrin, and she was crying. I've seen my wife cry twice because of pain. Once she was laid up in the hospital when something happened to her back, and she called me on the phone crying, and she was crying. She has these headaches, and they're they're bad, and they last for two or three days, but I've never seen her cry. And She said, my head hurts so bad. And um, we had no medicine. We had nothing to do. And so she just laid down in the bed. And I, my son, by this time, had woken up. And I asked you to come over there. And I said, just just hold mom's hand. And Bob, we prayed. We prayed out loud. I knew there was no elders. There was no, we were alone in the desert. There was no priesthood. There was no church members that I knew of to call. And we just sat there and with her and held her. And I just I just rubbed her head. And, and we prayed out loud. And I said, God, you're our only hope. And by, <laughs> within 20 minutes, I said, I'm so sorry you're going through this. She says, no, it's almost gone. And, and 20 minutes later, her headache was gone, and she didn't have one the rest of the trip. And I just, the next morning, we just sat there amazed. I said, Kristen, I've, I know that you've never had that go away that fast. But, but to have this be the worst one and then to have it removed, it was just an act of love from God. And and. Like I said, that pales in comparison to what you went through with your wife. But to have something that immediate and that relevant just this past week is. Um, and then by the next day, you know, by that night, you're fighting or there's something happens. I'm like, we just had a miracle last night. And look at us. And we're like, that's our nature. <laughs> that's our nature. You know, when I look at that head injury with my wife, and I think you're, what you just described is every bit as poignant. Um, when I look at, the, the experience, I was laid off from my job just a few months before she mm. had the head injury. And so I was available to help her recover. And the Lord blessed us immensely uh. that way. The other thing was that Brother John Mundy drove 250 miles to come and minister to her Aww. in Phoenix. Twice he did that. And uh, he was on an Indian reservation down there in Arizona. And I appreciated that so much. But God sends these little things our mm. way, like you're talking about, that are not little. For us, they're huge. They're big. Yeah. They mean a lot. Bob, I'll finish with this question. If you were to tell somebody really quick, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What would you say? Jesus died on my behalf. He died for me that a sacrifice had to be made for sin. I'm a sinner. I need redemption. And Jesus is the only way that that can occur is through his atoning sacrifice. Without that, I'm lost. Mm. I love it. Well, I've really enjoyed today. This will be a two-parter. So uh, thank you for coming on. And um and sharing any final words you want to say? Or? <laughs> no, I think that's it. I've really enjoyed uh, being here, and it's a new experience for me, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you. You've got a lot of knowledge. Maybe we can do something in the future where we can make some broadcasts to help people. Um, I like yeah. relying on it. You came with all these papers, and I knew you just talked off the top of your head. You, you know what you're doing. Thank you for your dedication to for everything you've done, your study, it's benefiting others. Well, thank you. The same to you, Mike. Thank you very much.